Hello, and welcome to the first episode of the Phantoms of the Living podcast. I'm your host, the paranormal author and musician, Simon Thought, coming to you from New England, USA. This series will cover case studies from the seminal two-volume, massive work known as Phantasms of the Living, published in 1886 by the Society for Psychical Research in England. The Society was made up of both skeptics and believers in the paranormal, and conducted research into various areas in an attempt to prove whether such phenomena were real or not. Led by the authors Edmund Gurney, M.A., and Frederick W.H. Myers, M.A., both late fellows of Trinity College, Cambridge, England, and Frank Podmore, M.A., they published the results of their studies in two approximately 700-page volumes, which they entitled Phantasms of the Living. In the parlance of the society, a phantasm was their term for a paranormal event. In the book, the authors explored about 700 case studies of such events, ranging from sightings of ghosts, premonitions of future events, telepathy, and more. They and their team from the society then performed research to determine whether there was any truth to the story being told and whether they were corroborated by real events. This podcast will read those case studies and the results of the society's research into them, then discuss them. Phantasms of the Living divides the case studies into categories. For our first episode, I want to discuss two case studies from Chapter 16 of Volume 2, which is entitled Tactile Cases and Cases Affecting More Than One of the Percipient Senses. In the parlance of the book, a percipient refers to the person to whom the paranormal event or phantasm, occurs. Our case studies today, being cases number 300 and 302, deal with the person on the receiving end of the event experiencing it with more than one of their senses, such as both hearing and seeing something. I do want to mention that being written in the 19th century, Phantasms of the Living has the flowery, formal language one would expect from that era. However, I think it adds an elegance and materiality to the tales. In a perfect world, the case studies would be told with a British accent, but I will not offend your senses by making such an attempt. You'll have to hear it with my American voice. So let's read our first case study of today, which is the long and detailed case number 302, dealing with an event impacting both sight and hearing. The account is from Mr. Garling of 12 Westbourne Gardens Folkestone, a witness as free from credulity and superstitious fancies as can well be imagined. February 1883, Case 302. One Thursday evening, about the middle of August in 1849, I went, as I often did, to pass the evening with the Reverend Harrison and his family, with whom I had for many years lived on terms of the closest intimacy. The weather being very fine, we made up a party with the neighbors and went to the Surrey Zoological Gardens and spent the evening there. I note this particularly because it proves that he and his family were in good health incontestably on that day, and that no suspicion of what was to follow so soon existed with anyone. The next day I went down on a visit to some relatives in Herefordshire, who lived at a house called Flamstead Lodge, about 26 miles from London, on the high road. We usually dined at 2 o'clock, and on Monday afternoon following, after their early dinner, I left the ladies in the drawing room and sauntered through the paddock down to the high road. You will note the time was in the middle of a sunny August day in a wide, public, commonplace high road, not a hundred feet from a roadside public house. 
I myself in a perfectly cheerful, healthy frame of mind, no surroundings of any kind to excite the imagination, some country people not far off indeed at the time I speak of. Suddenly a phantom stood before me, so close that had it been a human being it must have touched me, blotting out for a moment the landscape and surrounding objects, itself indistinct in outline but with lips that seemed to move and murmur something, with eyes fearfully distinct that fixed and followed and glared into mine, with a look so intense and deeply earnest that I fairly recoiled from the spot and started backwards. I said to myself instinctively, and probably uttered it out loud, Good God, it's Harrison! Though not thinking of him or having any reason to think of him in the remotest degree at the moment. In probably a few seconds, which seemed to me far longer, it vanished, leaving me rooted to the spot for a few moments and sensible of the reality of the vision by the curious physical effect it left upon me. This was as if the blood was like ice in my veins, no flutter of the nerves, but a deadly chill feeling that lasted more or less for nearly an hour and only gradually wore off as the circulation returned. I've never felt any similar sensation before or since. I said nothing to the ladies when I returned as I should have frightened them out of their wits, and the impression made upon me gradually became fainter as the day wore out. I've said that the house was near the high road, it stood in its own grounds by the side of a country lane leading up to the village two hundred or three hundred yards or more from any other habitation, with a seven-foot iron railing in front to keep out tramps. Gates always locked at night, about thirty feet of hard gravel and paved pathway from front door to lane. A beautiful, quiet summer evening followed. Placed as the house was, with hard gravel and high iron palisade and paving, no one could have approached the house in the deep silence of that summer evening without being heard a long way off. There was, moreover, a large dog in a kennel, placed so as to command the front entrance, especially to warn off intruders, and a little terrier inside that barked at everybody and at every noise. We were just retiring to bed, and were sitting in the drawing room, which was on the ground floor close by the front door, the terrier within. The servants had already gone to bed in a room quite at the back, sixty feet away. They, when they came down, told us they were asleep and were roused by the noise. Suddenly there came to the front door a noise so loud and continuous, the door seeming to shake in the frame and to vibrate under some tremendous blows, that we started at our feet in amazement, and the servants came in a moment after, half-dressed, running downstairs from the room at the back, to know what it was. We went at once to the door, but could neither hear nor see anything or anybody, and the dogs gave no tongue whatever. The terrier, contrary to its nature, slunk shivering under the sofa and would not even stop at the door, and nothing could induce him to go into the darkness. There was no knocker on the door, nothing to fall down, no possibility of anyone approaching or leaving the house so situated in that profound silence without discovery. They were all horribly frightened, and I found it very difficult to get them to go to bed, but I was myself in so unimpressionable a frame of mind that I did not at the time connect it with the phantom in the afternoon, but still went to bed myself, pondering upon it, and seeking some obvious explanation to satisfy the members of the household, but without success. I stopped there till Wednesday morning, having no suspicion of what had happened in my absence. On that morning, I returned to town with my chambers, then at number 11 King's Road, Gray's Inn. My clerk met me at the door with, Sir, a gentleman has been here two or three times, is most anxious to see you. Says he must see you immediately. He's gone out for a few minutes to get a biscuit, but he will be back directly. 
In a few minutes, the gentleman returned, and I recognized him at once as Mr. Chadwick, also an intimate friend of Harrison and his family. He then told me, to my amazement, there's been a fearful visitation of cholera in the Wandsworth Road, meaning at Mr. Harrison's. All are gone. Mrs. Roscoe was attacked on Friday and died. Her maid the same evening and died. Mrs. Harrison was attacked on Saturday morning and died that evening. The housemaid died on Sunday. The cook also was taken ill, was carried away, and escaped very narrowly. Poor Harrison was attacked himself on Sunday night, was fearfully ill all day Monday and yesterday, and has been taken away from the pest house in the Wadsworth Road to Jack Straw's castle at Hampstead to get into a better air. He was begging and praying for the people about him all Monday and yesterday to send for you, but nobody knew where you were gone to. You must take a cab at once and come with me or you will not see him alive. I went with Chadwick at once, but he was dead before I reached the place. H.B. Garling. The obituary in The Watchman for August 15, 1849 shows that Mrs. Roscoe died from cholera on August 4th, Mrs. Harrison on August 8th, and the Reverend T. Harrison on Thursday, not Wednesday, the 9th, at Hampstead. In answer to inquiries, Mr. Garling says, The ladies were old and had been dead for some 25 years. Of the servants of the house, all trace has been lost. Mr. Garling added a few details in conversation with the present writer. The figure met him in the high road, so close to his face that he hardly observed anything in detail except the face. He's had one other hallucination when he seemed to see the figure of a friend at the foot of his bed, but the friend was one whose funeral he had just been attending and who, moreover, had been accustomed in life to sit where the figure was seen, and Mr. Garling himself was going to sleep at the time. The experience, therefore, cannot be argued to show any special proclivity to subjective hallucination. As with most of the case studies, real names and addresses of the reporter are given, lending credence to their authenticity. At the times of these events in 1849, death and disease were frequent occurrences, much as with today's COVID-19 pandemic. The parallel backdrop made this the case study I wanted to begin with. Do you believe the recipient? Certainly he was a well-respected man who had nothing to gain by lying or by even participating in the study at all. The dates and times were specific and mostly borne out by the researcher's investigation. It is certainly hard to explain. Following up the case study, the authors state, The auditory experience here is a good specimen of what I have called the rudimentary type, a class of which the inconclusiveness has been sufficiently dwelt on. But clearly the presumption that the sound was telepathic in origin is strengthened by the fact of the visual experience which preceded it. Telepathy having, as we may reasonably suppose, produced the first phenomenon, it is not unreasonable to credit with the second, especially since the second, though it affected so many persons, seems in itself particularly hard to account for by any objective cause in the vicinity. It may appear, no doubt, extremely strange that the conditions which first flashed an impression to the one person directly interested should afterward involve the whole household in a psychic storm. I like that term, psychic storm. So is this a ghost story or was it a case of telepathy? It is safe to say that Mr. Garley knew that cholera was killing people in the area and it makes sense that he would worry about his close friend, Reverend Harrison, getting sick. Still, to see a ghostly figure on a beautiful August night is strange. Stories where people claim to see paranormal events while falling asleep or even having paranormal dreams seem to me to be more likely hallucinations than facts. The case of Mr. Garley is not that at all.
Our second case study is case 300, which is an interesting, shorter, nautical tale of a very long-duration event also affecting sight and hearing. Mr. Lewis Lyons of 3 Bouvery Square Folkestone wrote on October 21, 1882, Case 300. Some time ago my son told me that a friend of his, a rough and simple-minded fellow, had returned from Shields and told him a curious tale. The man is a sailor and had served with his father ever since he was a boy in a collier which trades between this port and the north. The youth, having become very proficient in his calling, went on his voyages, leaving his father, now an elderly man, at home. During a stormy voyage and not far off the Humber, the young sailor saw his father, whom he had left in excellent health, pacing the deck and calling out several times as he was wont to do, Mind your helm, Joe! The young man wished to speak to his father, but could not. Some occult power prevented him. At the end of the voyage, a letter awaited the young sailor, announcing the death of his father at the precise time when he appeared to his son. But please to remark, a matter of some importance, I think, that the apparition remained on deck some three hours until the vessel got to Grimsby. This differs from the first-hand account. I disbelieved my son's story and requested him to ask his friend to come and take tea with me that I might hear the account from his own mouth. He came. The simplicity of his manner, his plain, open-hearted account, and I might even say his stupidity, manifested in his peculiar diction, imparted an impress to his tale. At our request, Mr. Lyons interrogated Edward Sings more formally the next time that the latter visited Folkestone. The following is Sings' own account. Folkestone, December 29, 1882. I left my father last about six years ago on a good Friday. He was in good health when I left him. We were in a gale of wind and we were running in the Humber. We carried the main gaff away. I was at the wheel steering her in. He came to me three to four times, tapped me on the shoulder, and told me to mind the helm. And I told the captain my father was drowned or something had happened to him. After we got in, when it was my watch, he was walking to and fro with me, and I went down below and told my mate I could not stop up and I did not like to. My mate took my watch. I never could speak to my father, for something kept me from doing so. I heard of my father's death a week afterwards. No one else saw my father's spirit. My father stopped on deck with me an hour, and as I could not stand it any longer, I went below and my mate took my place. We cast both anchors and were towed into Grimsby. My mother and sister were at my father's deathbed, and they told me that my father asked several times whether I was in the harbor. I certify this to be a true account. Edward Sings. We find from the debt register of deaths that E. Sings' father died on April 7, 1877, aged 53. Good Friday fell on March 30th, and this, it will be seen, corresponds very well with the above statement. Mr. Lyons has kindly visited Sings' mother and sister at 67 Tontine Street, Folkestone, and received a similar account from them. In typical 19th century fashion, the authors have to diminish the recipient's credibility by stating that his truthfulness can be somewhat questioned due to his lack of education. I'm not sure what that has to do with anything, as the recipients in the book are not being paid for telling their stories. In fact, it was Mr. Lyons who told the story and then had to go get Mr. Sings to tell it himself. It was not as though Mr. Sings was reaching out to the society to relate his experience. The fact that the event continued for three hours is quite strange and seemed to wear down Mr. Sings to the point where he had to leave. 
I can see why he would not volunteer this story. So what does this all mean? When something cannot be rationally explained, people tend to jump to paranormal causes. As with the Society for Psychical Research, a healthy dose of skepticism only adds authenticity to the results. We should never jump to a paranormal conclusion until we have objectively obsessed the situation. This ends our first episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, I'm Simon Bott, and I wrote and produced it, other than the parts read from the Phantoms of the Living itself, of course. Our theme song is called The Salad Bar and was performed by my band, Simon Bott and the Uploads. It's available on the usual music streaming platforms if you are so inclined. Any comments from listeners about what you think these case studies mean would be appreciated. You can also tell me your story of phantasms you may have experienced. I may read what you send on a future episode. You never know. I can be reached by email at simonfontontheuploads at gmail.com. I hope to tell further case studies from Phantasms of the Living in future episodes, and I hope you'll join me then. Thank you for listening, and be vigilant. You never know when a phantasm will occur, so keep an eye out. Be well, and goodbye.